I, I actually think that, and this is certainly what we think in our team and what all our modeling shows is that the expected return for 60-40 is, you know, essentially zero or cash at best. And that's for an extended period of time. And that makes it really difficult for building portfolios when the essentially the core structure of most portfolios is a 60-40 and then you put bits and pieces around the edges. In reality, that core structure is probably your biggest risk at the moment because that is actually has embedded with it within it an expected return of nothing. And that nothing can be there for an extended period of time. I'm not talking over one or two years. If you look at the return of a 60-40 portfolio over a hundred years, there's, there's plenty of periods where it returns zero for 10 years. And this looks like one of those periods. And so when you're thinking about how to construct portfolios, now and going forward, you need to be thinking much more about things that are alternative to 60-40 portfolios, looking for more diversifying assets and really getting away from the core structure. And to some level, that's actually quite a different way of traditionally building portfolios. As I said, you know, traditionally you think about building a 60-40, adding bits around the edges. Perhaps what it is now is just adding bits around the edges and making that much more part of the core portfolio. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Martin Emery, portfolio and quantitative strategist on GMO's systematic global macro team. We talk to Martin about the current macro environment and how GMO approaches systematically investing in asset classes using valuation, expected future returns, sentiment, and other factors. We also discuss the Federal Reserve and its impact on the markets for the past decade and how investors should be thinking about the Fed's role going forward. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with GMO's Martin Emery. Hi, Martin. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Justin. It's good to be on board and uh, thanks for having me. We thought you would be a good guest to have on, uh, not only to discuss the current macro environment, which I think seems heightened for investors, um, given the things that are happening in economies and markets around the world, but also to discuss how one might think about building a um, or thinking of a systematic macro investment strategy and the types of things that you do at GMO um, when building a macro portfolio. Um, so it, the topic is mostly going to be macro related. Um, here at Validia, we tend to be a little bit more bottoms up with our investment process, but we know we can always learn and our listeners can learn a lot from others that have very different investment process. And GMO has been running this macro strategy for a very long time. Um, and running bil billions of dollars um, in the strategy. So I think this can be a really good and um, educational discussion. Um, before we get into that, though, I wanted to just ask you a little bit more about your investing career um, and your path and how you got to become part of the GMO macro team. Yes, uh, thank you. So, I mean, the background of the team and I guess myself, actually, as you said, it goes back over 20 years. Uh, Myself and two others, Jason and Sean, who are still part of the team, uh, we were actually working together many years ago, actually, at a, at a well-known uh, bank in Australia, running a somewhat similar sort of product, I guess. Uh, and then we moved over to GMO, as I said, over 20 years ago. 
And we've just built the process from there. Uh, yeah, really developing the strategies, really thinking about how did markets work, learning from the global GMO framework, working with the global GMO research teams and building up a, a strong client base that actually covers the globe. So we have investors all around the world, uh, invested in our products and it's, it's something we're very proud of. And I think we've been able to deliver some good returns to our clients while really controlling for some risks and making sure people aren't overexposed to risks that we think are inappropriate. Okay, well, yeah, thanks for sharing um, those details on on how you um, got to GMO. Right now, there seems to be a higher than average level of uncertainty just overall with the macro landscape. I mean, we have the highest inflation we've seen basically since the late 70s, early 80s. We have a war and conflict in Ukraine um, with global implications in many different for many different ways and for many different economies and markets, um, the possibility of, of deglobalization, interest rates that are headed higher. So just overall, like when you are assessing the current macro situation and the risks to the market, how are you thinking about it um, at GMO right now? Yeah, there's there's no doubt this is a a very unique point in history. Uh, particularly some of the things we're seeing in the Ukraine, uh, interest rate cycles. I think that they're really landmark events. And obviously we've been through COVID, which I'm sure we'll all remember and talk about for many years to come. And these are creating a lot of very unique risks, uh, that are in many ways, very difficult to model and very much, you know, very open and very difficult to actually forecast perhaps what some of the longer term outcomes of these things are. But also what you've got at the moment, which I think is actually compounding that is you've actually got a, a world of very expensive assets at a time period where you've actually got a lot of very difficult to monitor risks. And so I think in these sort of environments, what you really need to do is be very cognizant of what bets are you really taking? How are you really allocating risk and making sure that your portfolios are allocated to risks that you understand, but also you're aware of what is the potential for tail events because in times like now tail events are much higher probability than perhaps in other time periods so when you're taking risks you need to make sure that they're proportionally positioned within your portfolio but also the other thing that's happening in the moment is that you can see some of the correlations that you might be relying on historically being somewhat more weak or perhaps even you know breaking down so you really need to understand what is your actual true exposure? What's your actual true risk that you're actually running? Not just within the markets, but actually in your investment process as well. I want to ask you, you referenced risks and there are, certainly are a lot of them out there right now, but one of the biggest ones is this whole idea of inflation. Um, you know, we haven't seen, you know, people like me have never seen inflation in our entire investing career. And, you know, some people who've been in the markets longer um, have seen it, but it's been a very long time. And I'm wondering how you sort of assess the risk of inflation. You know, you have some people right now who say, you know, inflation, although it may not have been transitory in the way the Fed said it was, it's at least going to be declining over time. And there's others who think we're going to have very high inflation with us for a long time. So how do you sort of think about inflation risk right now? Yeah, inflation risk is obviously very high. Inflation itself, I think, is actually probably one of the hardest uh, economic variables to actually forecast. It's really quite a difficult thing to look forward and get actually an accurate forecast for. But I think actually as we look forward, there's, I think there's really two components here. You know, even the inflation number we saw just the other day, I think really encompasses this in that what the market is actually expecting at the moment, what the market is really pricing in is that inflation is going to 
abated by the end of next year and certainly by the end of the, the year after. Uh, but what we even saw the other day is that markets were disappointed and they've been disappointed leading into this and for a couple of months. So I think you really have a situation here where markets probably underpricing the, the risk of high inflation and the, the probability of inflation being higher or at least disappointing markets is actually reasonably high. And when you actually look at what's causing the inflation, yes, part of it is transitory. There's no doubt about that and perhaps higher energy prices, uh, supply chain disruptions that we all talk about. But there's also some other signals within the inflation that make you think that actually it's probably going to be around for a lot longer than we think. If we even take a look at the inflation print the other day, uh, CPI X food X energy has you know, had a six in front of it. That's quite a significant number. When we look at wage inflation, that is actually starting to creep into the picture. Uh, we've been through a period of significant monetary expansion. All these probably suggest that you know, inflation isn't going to be immediately passing. Now, the Fed is obviously going forward and trying to you know, make uh, efforts to combat inflation and bring it down. So yes, I think they will have obviously some effect, but I think the chances of markets being disappointed, you know, reasonably significant. I think that's something that we're really looking at now in processes. Do you think the Fed is fighting a battle they can't win here? Um, you know, on one hand, they're going to have to try to you know, raise rates here to, and, you know, maybe make the balance sheet smaller here in order to fight inflation. But on the other hand, you know, that's going to have impacts on the economy. That's going to have impacts on markets. Um, I mean, do you think there's a possibility of a soft landing here? Or do you think this is they're trying to fight a battle they really can't win? Yeah, that's, that's a really the, the big question, isn't it? I, I, I think that to some level, they will be able to control inflation. This, but they are, you're absolutely right. They are really caught in a difficult position. If they go too aggressively, they will you know, essentially bring a, an economy down that is actually still has some struggles in it. Uh, but if it doesn't do something, it's going to you know, have runaway inflation and it is trying to create a balancing act. I think it is possible for them to you know, create some sort of medium between the two. I think that there is going to be some slowdown. There has to be some slowdown. And traditionally, if you look at any sort of rate wise, there is some sort of recession there afterwards. Uh, it is going to be a, a difficult situation for the Fed. And, that is going to have impacts on markets too. Um, I wanted to ask you about something GMO is known for, which is you're known for uh, pro projecting expected returns out in the future. And you know, one of the things your analysis has showed for a very long time now is these expected returns are not very good. I mean, we, we were joking before the podcast that they've gone from extremely horrendously awful to maybe just horrendously awful with this little decline here. But th things are still not looking good. You know, bond yields are still pretty low. Valuations are still pretty high. And so I'm wondering, what do you think going forward about the outlook for stocks and bonds and for the 60-40 portfolio? Yeah, I, I actually think that, and this is certainly what we think in our team and what all our modeling shows, is that the expected return for 60-40 is, you know, essentially zero or cash at best. And that's for an extended period of time. And that makes it really difficult for building portfolios when the essentially the core structure of most portfolios is a 60-40 and then you put bits and pieces around the edges. In reality, that core structure is probably your, your biggest risk at the moment because that is actually has embedded with it within it an expected return of nothing. And that nothing can be there for an extended period of time. I'm not talking over one or two years. If you look at the return of a 60-40 portfolio over 100 years, there's, there's plenty of periods where it returns zero for 10 years. And this looks like one of those periods. And so when you're thinking about how to construct portfolios now and going forward, you need to be thinking much more about 
things that are alternative to 60-40 portfolios, looking for more diversifying assets and really getting away from the core structure. And to some level, that's actually quite a different way of traditionally building portfolios. As I said, you know, traditionally, you think about building a 60-40, adding bits around the edges. Perhaps what it is now is just adding bits around the edges and making that much more part of the core portfolio. On the bond side, obviously we've had low yields for a very long time. They've they've come up a little bit here, but they're they're still his, you know pretty historically low. Um, so the returns haven't been that attractive. But I'm wondering, are there are there areas of the bond market that you think are attractive, or, or do you just think bonds in general, you know, given rising rates and inflation, are probably not a great place to be right now? Yeah, certainly our model East shows bonds just aren't going to add value whatsoever. Uh, now, look, there's probably some parts in the universe that do actually bond portfolios in general that probably do add some value. So. Some other parts of GMO things, perhaps emerging markets is a good place to go, but that's actually outside of our universe. Within our universe, we just see bonds as something short. And it's not just because we see bonds as poor value. It's actually one of the other things we need to be thinking about at the moment is that part of the reason why equities are suffering is because bonds are suffering. You know, part of the reason bonds actually sit in a portfolio is that you're looking at it as a source of diversification. Actually at the moment, and so what we're seeing at the moment is that the risk of bonds is actually creating risk within your equities. So it's actually not even giving you, it's not giving you returns and it's not giving you diversification either, which makes it difficult to justify it being in your portfolio whatsoever. Yeah, well, one of the things that surprised me when I was just looking at the returns of the 60-40 portfolio recently, it sort of corrected itself, but at one point the 60-40 portfolio was down more than stocks. So bonds were actually a drag on your returns for this year. Now, now it's a little bit better, but still they've, they've barely provided any help um, this year to your point. It's, it's, it's definitely a difficult period to uh, really justify holding a big bond position in a, in a balanced fund. And I want to ask you about the equity side. So, so on the equity side, obviously you see, you see the equity market in general as pretty expensive, but are, are there certain areas? I know Jeremy Grantham has talked about value or emerging markets. Are there certain areas in the equity market that you do see as attractive right now? Yeah, there is, but I think it's actually where we see things being attractive is probably not in an absolute sense. Like we actually see that there's you know, as I said, if you think about returns to equities, there's really two components to it. There's a, there's a beta return and, and an alpha return. The returns to beta we see is, you know, is essentially zero. Uh, you know, we don't think you really go get any returns from, you know, holding long equities at all. But that said, if we look at the relative returns to equities, you know, shorting one market and being long one market and looking at the valuation differentials, we actually see this as a tremendously rich environment. So if we think about the more expensive parts of the global equity universe versus the more, you know, good value parts of the global equity universe, there's actually substantial returns that are possible there. So within our portfolio, we are short places like the US and long, you know, places like emerging or uh, even parts of Europe. And some of the valuation differentials, you know, are much better and much greater. And we see a much bigger return opportunity than that than just holding an individual market in its own right or the individual equity market in its own right. Yeah. To your point, this is, you know, when we, when we kind of look at like long, short value strategies, this has been, you know, an exceptional year for them after a period where maybe they struggled. I mean, the high growth expensive stuff has just been getting killed um, and the value stuff has been doing well relatively. So like you said, there, there probably is a relative opportunity, you know, between the two, even if you're not a believer in the equity market in general. Correct. And that, what we're seeing a lot of at the stock level is also extraordinarily true within the country levels. Uh, there are countries out there that are becoming extraordinarily expensive and there are countries out there that are becoming extraordinarily cheap or relatively cheap, even though they might not be cheap in, in absolute terms, they're definitely cheap in relative terms. And I think that 
looking at those sort of opportunities is a, is a much more reliable and much more realistic way of generating returns in the future rather than just going, I just want to buy this market. I want to ask you about some alternatives to stocks and bonds. You know, one of the things a lot of people have been using recently is, is investing in commodities and investing in gold and investing in things like that. But one of the challenges of those is, you know, the long-term return of commodities has not been particularly great. And so it seems like they're an asset that sometimes there's, you, you want to be in and other times you definitely don't want to be in. So I'm wondering, how do you think about incorporating those types of things into a systematic global macro strategy? Yeah, commodities are actually a very interesting asset class in the you, you're right, and yeah, it's very hard to perhaps look at commodities as a long-term structural position within a portfolio. But again, what you do see, and we've certainly seen it during COVID, and we certainly see it now, is two commodities that are actually somewhat related or quite similar, uh, having extraordinarily different uh, return paths. And again, so you can see there, you can, as you could imagine, and you know, perhaps because of the war in Ukraine, perhaps again because of some of the things that happened in COVID. The opportunity of it going long short in some of these commodities is actually quite high and you can generate some significant returns. So we do see it actually adds some good alpha into the overall portfolio and, and particularly a long short portfolio from an alpha sense, even though you may not want to hold it as a structural long. And in terms of gold, you know, gold is something that's really surprised me in this downturn because you'd think high inflation, you know, a lot of risk and volatility. You might think people would have gone to gold here, but they really haven't. It hasn't done all that well. And I'm wondering what you think about gold and maybe why it hasn't worked as well, you know, in this downturn as many thought it would. Yeah, gold's actually an interesting asset. It's, uh, I find gold perhaps, you know, intellectually interesting in that, you know, for so long and so much history, we found it such a fascinating asset to hold. You know, for thousands of years, we've seen it as a store of wealth, even though by and large, we don't actually use it too much for industries or actual productive use. Um, when we actually look at you know, who's been buying gold, the central banks and ETFs have actually had some significant inflows. But again, there's a duality of gold. Now, you know, people use it for jewelry and all that sort of stuff. And actually over the last quarter, that actually has weakened off because of the economic environment. So between those two, you, you know, the, the demand of gold has probably been relatively constant or relatively flat. So, you know, it's not surprising that it hasn't taken off. And I guess we also can close the book now on Bitcoin potentially being the future gold and the hedge for inflation after the last few days. Uh, that, that hasn't gone as well as some people had projected. Yes. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of people are hoping, but I, I think there's a long way to go in uh, cryptocurrencies. I want to ask you about currencies because that's something you invest in that probably most of our listeners do not invest in. And they probably don't understand maybe necessarily the process behind how you sort of select which currencies to invest in and which ones you don't. So I'm wondering if you can maybe talk about your process for determining, you know, what currencies you're investing in. Yeah, sure. So when we look at any asset, we, we try and think about first and foremost, what, what's, what's the long-term return you're going to get from it, be it a, a stock or a bond or even a currency? What from an economic basis is, is its long-term return path. We're thinking seven, 10 years, that's sort of long-term. And to do that, we break it into uh, essentially two, uh, two components. What's a you know, cash flow and what's a long-term capital gain loss. Now we do this for all our assets, but for currencies, when we do that, we look at you know, essentially what's a running yield. So a carry type of component for the, the yield. And for a capital gain and loss, we model out uh, a purchasing car parity or a PPP. You can think about that as what is a basket of goods in one country versus a basket of goods in another country. They should be somewhat similarly priced and there should be some movement within the two that brings the currencies back together. So we have models that do that and that gives us a view over what the 
relative value is between two currencies over a longer period, you know, as I said, seven to 10 years. And but seven to 10 years is a long time frame, So we need to think about some of the shorter term dynamics because certainly currencies and all assets, they, they move up and down as they go to that longer term trajectory. So we need to think about the things that might push away from fair value or some of the shorter term events that might actually create stocks within currencies or even equities or bonds. So we have a bunch of shorter term models, which we refer to as sentiment. And what we try to look there is, you know, what are price trends? What is economic news? What is economic trends? Uh, looking at perhaps news analytics and natural language analytics, those sort of uh, variables. And we create a model there to try and uh, capture the short term dynamics. What we're also trying to do is really trying to uh, time value. There's no point in buying an asset when it's cheap, if it's going down like a rock, or there's no point in selling something, even if it's above fair value, but it's, it's going up fairly strongly and there's a lot of confidence behind it. So we want to try and capture that and really make sure we're exiting at a good time and buying in into good time while considering what's economic fair value is and what's the real economic long-term perspective of a currency. And you mentioned sentiment, and that was one of the most interesting parts of your process to me, is that you're kind of coupling your value approach with a sentiment approach. Is that something you do across all the different things you invest in? Is it something specific to currencies or is it something you do kind of with everything you invest in? No, we, we do across all assets. It's actually something we've always done. Uh, yeah, sentiment is very powerful within markets. You can think about, you know, even equities at the moment, there's a lot of bad news perhaps going through emerging markets. They might be very, very cheap, uh, but actually the sentiment across emerging is, you know, it's not so good at the moment, right? So we need to temper that value forecast with some understanding some of the shorter term dynamics. Perhaps you could think about US equities. It's, you know, pretty expensive on most metrics, but there's some particular relative basis, some good news coming out within the US compared to other markets, even though it might actually be, you know, an absolute terms number. So, good. so we need to temper these just by understanding some of the shorter term dynamics and making sure we look at that within our framework to create forecasts. Martin, I'm just curious, like there's a, there's a value component and there's this sediment, which is in there to try to, you know, avoid these asset classes that are just, you know, declining, but what is the portfolio? I mean, does it have the ability to look very different, let's say from one year to the next and, you know, how, and how, I guess. How active is the investment strategy in the selection of, of the assets? How different can the portfolio look over time? And, and maybe if you can comment, like how is the portfolio actually like generally positioned today? So the, the portfolio is not designed to rapidly change. If you if you really change a portfolio too rapidly, you burn on transaction costs. You can actually end up being whipsawed a little bit, and that's what we're trying to avoid. So we try and look at, say, a holding period of over a few months in anything we really sort of hold. But things can change. Uh, normally what you find in the portfolio is there's always going to be some assets which are severely dislocated in valuation, and we'll take a position there that's somewhat longer. You'll find other assets which are somewhat towards fair values. They're being more driven by sentiment rather than, than value. When we look at the portfolio at the moment, uh, what, you know, generally speaking, we tend to be more on the equity side, more along, say some of the emerging and some of the European stocks, they tend to be much better value, even though the sentiment is a bit poor on those, uh, they are significantly better value than perhaps say parts of the US or even perhaps India or something like that. We tend to be short those sort of markets on the equity side. 
On the bond side, we've rather, we've essentially short most bonds around the world. We uh, see that, you know, bonds around the world is again, very poor value because of what we're seeing within inflation and world of very long, short yields or very low yields. Um, we have a mixture of currencies. We're along some emerging, some Euro, uh, a little bit short US dollar. Again, if you think about some of the uh, monetary printing that's been going on and some of the inflation concerns, that's probably not surprising on the currency side. And then a smattering of, of commodities across the board. But I think actually probably the, the biggest theme and most important theme within the portfolio is that it's actually holding extraordinarily little beta at the moment. We really aren't holding much you know, in terms of net equities. Uh, and we really are more short sure bonds. So you could actually think about it. It's almost the anti 60, 40 portfolio or, you know, a portfolio is almost short 60, 40. Um, one of the papers that, um, we read in preparation for this was it came out of your global macro team and it was talking about this idea that, uh, over the last decade, the market, you know, has been influenced and driven a lot by the feds balance sheet. So as the fed, the feds balance sheets expanded, you know, stocks have reacted positively to that um and your article was talking about well what happens when the fed's balance sheet is contracting or as the fed is unwinding um and offloading some of these assets so can you just talk a little bit to what some of the research that you've done at gmo and i think it was also some research from an academic that you sort of referenced in there as well but what you um what you found in that paper yes yeah, there, there, there was a, the, the paper we put out and uh, to our clients was that it was really drawing from a, uh, an academic piece by a professor named Talis Putnitz. I actually know Talis. I actually do some work for UTS uh, as well, and he's the professor down there. Where I thought Talis's paper was fantastic is actually looked very extensively at what I think is probably one of the driving issues within markets at the moment and really sums up one of the uh, something we've seen within macro and that is the expansion of the balance sheet and what it's really created or the expansion of the fed balance sheet and what he's shown in, you know, quite nicely in the paper is that as the fed has expanded its balance sheet those obviously had a knock-on effect into equity markets and really you know, held up equity markets he studied the balance sheet for you know, essentially 2009 back to about you know 2020 and he's Conclusion where I think the conclusion is most important is that it's obviously shown that not only did it support the balance sheet, but actually contractions on the uh, balance sheet will also have a knock on effect in really hurting markets and bringing them down. Now, that's a really important issue in times like now because obviously there's a lot of talk about the Fed uh, reducing their balance sheet and that's going to you know, have an impact. And we're looking at a time period here where the Markets are extremely expensive. They're vulnerable because there's a lot of uh, other, you know, it's expensive to start with. But there's obviously, as we talked about, a lot of risk within the markets. So this is going to be yet another concern that investors need to worry about. And we wanted to highlight to our investors, this is something that you know, people need to look at and at least keep in mind as part of the problem. I think the other thing that expanding the balance sheet has probably done as well uh, is that some of the, the issues or some of the things that we've seen within markets is a lot of assets have been able to extend or remain overvalued for a very long period of time. Uh, perhaps, you know, these bubbles just haven't been able to 
you know, burst a little bit or, or let off steam. I suspect my own personal view is that a lot of that has been because we've put so much money supply and you know, so much liquidity in the markets. It's been forced to find a home. And as a result of that, essentially overinflated assets have been extended and these bubbles have been allowed to persist for perhaps much longer than is healthy. I think part of um, your response to my next question um, has been answered throughout this discussion, but I just want to read this to you at the end of the article in the summary, um, the, the authors wrote, as a result of the magnitude of these value dislocations, the opportunities for macro alpha, which derives most of its return from relative value and cross-sectional trades, are the best we've seen in the 20-year history of running the SGM, Systematic Global Macro Portfolio. So um, just looking for sort of some of your comments and insights on that call. Again, I, and I think this is actually bringing it back to it, it, not just even within macro, but actually when you're thinking about putting together a portfolio all together. Again, as we sort of mentioned at the start of this, this is a tough time for bonds. It's a tough time for equity. So where do you actually find valuation? If we think about, you know, just a straight relativity of valuations across the world, let, let's, let's think about, you know, two perhaps of the bigger blocks. You know, you've got the U.S., if we looked at a shill at PE in the US, it's, you know, getting towards perhaps 30s. Uh, you look at a normal PE in the US, it's, you know, it's low 20s. You look at sort of similar metrics across maybe Europe or emerging markets, they're, they're significantly lower. If these are to revert to some level, or, you know, come back to perhaps a more normal uh, ratio or differential, that is an incredibly high implied return, significantly higher than the implied return of just being long equities. So because of these reasons, we think that the environment for macro is actually extraordinarily high. And again, going back perhaps to Talis's articles and some of the things we talked about with COVID, uh, you know, the risk of the moment to beta and inflation as well, the, the risk to beta is very high. And so again, we're trying to make our clients or allow our clients to think about this and try and position portfolios accordingly. I'm wondering what you think about this idea of the Fed put and the Fed coming in, um, you know, if stock markets decline um, by a large amount, if that would cause, I mean, what we've seen so far is like, you know, I mean, that, NASDAQ's obviously in bear market territory, S&P's almost there, but, you know, for the most part, it doesn't seem like, you know, the Fed is going to at all react to anything that's happening in the market, at, at least at these levels. But do you think there is a point where the Fed might consider sort of backing off um, on some of these things that they're doing, like higher rates? Or is it not, you know, is that really not on the table for the Fed? Is, is what happens in the market what happens in the market? And they're more worried about the actual economy now. Yeah, look, I think, the, as we said before, the Fed's in a tough position. It, it really needs to focus on inflation. Um, the, you know, inflation is... You know, it, it's detrimental to everybody in many different ways. Um, but I think actually the concept of the Fed put is, it's still there. Uh, you know, if we think about why is the market sort of happy today, it's because the market was told only a couple of days ago that a 75 basis points rise was off the table. And to some level that is a put in itself, right? I mean, the market's sort of confident because, oh, yes, we know this, there's some sort of clarity. Yes, it's going to be higher. Rates are going to be higher, but it's not going to be you know, a, a massive break slammed on it. Um, 
So is that a putter? I would argue that it's still, it's not put in a traditional sense. The dynamics have certainly changed, but it is still a bit of a put. Um, so I don't think the Fed put is completely dead. I, I think it's probably just more of a renewed form. Do you think you could take that genie out of the bottle? So in other words, once the Fed has started doing this and started worrying about markets, do you think they can ever get back to a point where that's not part of their mission? Or do you think maybe it's still going to be part of their mission, but maybe they're, you know, it's going to take a much bigger decline for them to maybe step back in? I think actually one of the problems we had here, and this is actually where a, a real issue is coming through, is if you, if you look at what the Fed is really meant to do back to its original statement, it's, it really has the three goals. It's meant to keep price stability. It's meant to keep uh, employment at, at a full level, and it's meant to keep long-term interest rates at a manageable level. It seems to have some sort of mission creep though, in that, you know, we really now starting to talk about Fed puts and, you know, it's trying not to crash assets, but that actually, is that really the goal of the Fed? I think it's actually almost become something that's been added to it and the Fed itself is making sure that markets aren't crashing and trying to make sure that it, markets don't react. And as in turn of that, the market's actually looking to the Fed for guidance. So, and it's becoming a circular issue. And I don't think that's particularly healthy. I think that you know, the Fed should be allowing markets to correct, you know, it's a natural part of markets. Uh, you know, it allows the steam to be taken out. And I think that, you know, the whole Fed put issues is really creating a bit of a problem because markets are not necessarily allowing the, the bubbles to be bled out slowly. And that in itself is probably making crashes more likely. Is your view that this really started um, during the financial crisis. Like I'm thinking back to like um, what Treasury did and what the Fed did in 2008 and 2009. And that almost like it was successful, at least for the for the equity market and the stock market. You could argue whether or not it was successful for the overall economy while it pulled us out of a really deep recession and put us into an expansion. But maybe there was parts of the economy that maybe weren't benefiting as much as some would have thought. But I'm just wondering, is, is, can, is that where this sort of ties back to in your mind, the Fed being being this involved in influencing the markets? Is that the really the, the, the core genesis, the start of it? Or was, was it happening before that time? I'm trying to pinpoint the actual start here. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's interesting. I mean, the Fed's always had some sort of involvement here, but I think actually probably more so what it's really done is perhaps because of more recent times, we've assumed this is the normal. And I heard actually a very interesting comment, you know, not that long back, you know, even a couple of hours ago that it's been a really unusual 30 years we've been through. Why is, why do we always assume this is normal and what we're going through tomorrow is unnormal. Perhaps what we're in now is the unnormal and tomorrow is more normal. I think actually, you know, going back to your comments that the Fed could, perhaps that is not so healthy. Maybe that is the, the unnormal and perhaps the, the, the more dangerous time and going back to where these things don't exist is probably the more normal and probably a, a more stable time. Well, I think the one thing that this uh, discussion sort of brings to the, um, to the forefront is, you know, the next five to 10 years are probably going to look very different than the last five to 10 years. And that's what happens in markets. You tend to go through these periods where, you know, I think investors, because of recency bias and other things, they think the current trend is just going to continue forever. And I think what we're seeing in this conversation with you brings to the, you know, highlights that things are changing, things are different. Um, you have higher inflation, 
we have higher rates. You know, the 60-40 doesn't look like it's going to produce anywhere near. So these are all things that I think investors need to be be thinking about and whether it's, you know, involves deploying some capital in a macro strategy or thinking of other things for the portfolio. I think that's um, very important for invest for invest long-term investors as they look out on the horizon. We have one standard closing question that we like to ask all of our guests, and that is based on your experience in the market, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? Yeah, that's a good question. I I think the one lesson I'd impart to investors or people is, I think the phrase this time is completely different has been overused in the market. I think I've heard that so many times and uh, I'm not saying things aren't different in some ways, but I think the idea that things are completely different is often not true. I think that if you look back in history, you can often find parallels or a combination of events that will probably help you explain what's actually happening today. Uh, we've just been through COVID. Is you know, global pandemic unique? No, but there's been some unique aspects to it and perhaps we can learn bits from history. So I'd say that with proper research and proper looking back through history and proper understanding of how Mars reacted and how humans actually react to events, you can actually find decent insights into events that you're trying to understand at the moment. Don't immediately assume that this time is completely different and you can't learn something from history. Thank you very much, Martin. We really appreciate it. If people want to learn more about you and GMO and the research you guys are putting out, where can they go? Go to GMO website, uh, gmo.com, or of course, you can always contact your GMO representatives. Great. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.